Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hey, everybody. It's me, Joni Mitch, and I just wanted to pop in and tell you about a new podcast from WNYC Studios. It's called Come Through with Rebecca Carroll, 15 Essential Conversations About Race in a Pivotal Year for America. And in it, Rebecca talks to great thinkers and artists, religious leaders, and more about how race and racism are playing out during this election year. And this week, she talks to Issa Rae. I know that we are all so, so, so happy that Insecure is back, and this conversation is just funny and smart and thoughtful, and I thought you all might like it. So enjoy. I hope that you're staying safe and staying in and taking care of yourselves. And without further ado, here it is. Rebecca's conversation with Issa Ray. I'm Rebecca Carroll, and this is Come Through 15 Essential Conversations About Race in a Pivotal Year for America. Celebrities are a strange breed a privileged tribe of attractive people, many of whom live and breathe rarefied air, lounging around in big houses, sifting through film scripts, project treatments, or late-night TV appearance requests. In America, we created this cult of celebrity as a way to worship that which we desired. And what America has always desired, in addition to wealth and success, is whiteness. In fact, when we talk about mainstream media or mainstream popular culture, what and who we're really talking about is white people. Black folks, despite our substantial, consistently game-changing contributions to music, film, art, sports, literature, and American culture at large, have been relegated to niche markets throughout history, no matter how talented, known, or productive we are. But that has changed in recent years. Right now, we're experiencing what a lot of Black creatives consider a changing of the guard, an opportunity to level up in mainstream popular culture and create great art, work, and entertainment without the stamp of approval from white audiences, consumers, and executives. Writer, producer, and actress Issa Rae is one member of that new guard. Issa has had a hell of a glow-up over the past five years. She's probably best known for creating and starring in Insecure on HBO. And she thinks it's time for Black folks to pull each other up and into the rooms where we need to be so that we can make the decisions about what we see and how we are seen. I've known Issa for nearly a decade. When I first met her, she had just launched The Misadventures of Awkward Black Girl a web series which, pretty much as it sounds, follows the very often uncomfortable adventures of a 20-something Black woman just trying to live her life. Even though all of the Black folks I knew were obsessed with the series, Issa wasn't making any money from it. She had a day job but was still broke. And she told me back then she sometimes felt like giving up. Well, she clearly did not give up. Awkward Black Girl became a runaway hit and caught the attention of writer and producer Larry Wilmore, who helped her negotiate a TV deal with an early iteration of Insecure. But it took years for that to happen. And when it did, things got very real. In the past two years alone, 
Issa has landed starring roles in three feature films and has appeared on multiple magazine covers. She's a full-blown celebrity now, and she's still Black as hell. And that is interesting to me because, yes, Black folks tend to stay real Black and maybe even get a bit Blacker during times of crisis. We rely on the faith, resilience, collective joy, and strength that has kept us here and whole in America. But I've watched Issa's entire aesthetic change from a bit scrappy and very awkward to celebrity chic, fashion focus, and super poised. Not that doing any or all of those things makes her less black, but I've been fascinated by how Issa navigates mainstream celebrity as a black woman, how she stays true to herself and her vision and maintains her sense of autonomy. I talked to Issa a couple of days before the new season of Insecure dropped. Twitter was absolutely abuzz. And I asked her, how's that feel? Uh, Flattering and horrifying, because that comes with a lot of expectations. People were literally like, oh, do you feel a lot of pressure when you're coming back because you took some time off? And, you know, before I was like, no. I mean, people, you know, I'm excited that people want to see it and it'll come and then it'll go like it always does. And now it just feels like so many eyes are on it and the anticipation. Mm. I hate anticipation. I hate hype. <laughs> I try to underhype as much as possible. I'm excited that people feel like it'll be their escape. And, you know, with some people who I've talked to who have seen the first five have said, you know, it feels like I am with my friends again or I have my old friends back. And that makes me feel really good um, that people identify with the characters in that way. So... I'm happy and scared. Wait, you said you hate hype. Are you a superstitious person? Is that why? Oh, yes. I am very superstitious. <laughs> I blame my family. I am. I, I hate the idea of jinxing things. Like, I won't say things out loud. I won't say what I'm working on because it'll go away. And that happens all, every time I'm, I fight. I'm like, don't say anything. Don't say anything to your friend because as soon as you say it, you know it's not going to happen anymore. And every mm. time I say it, it disappears. So, yes, I'm very superstitious in that way. So uh, we'll, I want to revisit that um, a little bit later. But first, let's just sort of in terms of how we know each other. We first met about 10 Back years ago. Yeah, yeah. And that was when Awkward Black Girl was really just starting to take off. Every Black person I knew was obsessed with it, but you weren't actually making any money off of it at the time, No, right? I still had a job when I met you. What was that job? Uh, I was working for the March of Dimes at the time. Oh, I'm starting to see. Is Was that an inspiration for... <laughs> yes, it was. <laughs> it was one of them. I had a couple nonprofit jobs, but yes, that was... That definitely inspired... Insecure. I think nonprofit <laughs> environments are kind of competitive in a way for where altruism is concerned. And I always found that very interesting and comical. Um, and I just always felt like I, I wasn't doing enough or maybe I didn't care enough and how that was reflected. And yeah, it was just an interesting group of people. And so back in your awkward black girl days, you were operating with a pretty bare bones team, mm -hmm. which was probably both fun and exhausting. Mm -hmm. Was there a moment when you were like, this just isn't worth it? Heck yeah. I mean, the first one <laughs> happened when I just didn't have any more money, season one. Um, but then when we were able to raise funding during that Kickstarter, 
it was great. It reinvigorated it. More people found out about it. And then season two was just really hard um, mm. for a lot of different reasons. Um, people don't realize that, like, the actors in the show were friends of mine who had real jobs. Some of them were working in San Francisco. Some of them were, you know, living abroad. So it was always hard to get people together on schedule. And yeah, I kind of couldn't wait to be done with it. It was very eye-opening to what the industry could be like. And I think that that ended up being a boot camp and helping me to kind of just do better when I finally got the opportunity to have a show. You know, I learned a lot of lessons from working on that show. And then a few years after we first met, we had this conversation that I often revisit in my mind. Mm. We were at South by Southwest having dinner with a bunch of folks, and we were all talking about the various side hustles and ways that we're trying to live and survive. Like, oh, maybe I'll start a blog or maybe I'll start a YouTube channel. But you were like, that's not for me. I have a vision and I'm going to stay in my lane. Do you remember that conversation? Mm. I mean, (laughs) that feels so interesting. Like, I still feel that way, but I've obviously dabbled in a lot of lanes now. Uh, Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. I I would still maintain that I say, I know what I'm not going to do. Like, I know that I'm not really passionate about directing and don't feel the need to be a director just because, like, oh, women aren't as prominent and, you know, Black women especially aren't as prominent. And so I'm just like, oh, I don't like to do that. And so I could, you know, work with or hire people that do. And there are other business ideas and, you know, other ventures and things that I'm just not interested in. I'm blessed to be able to say that I pursue things that I'm interested in. So how did you find your lane and how have you stayed in it at the end of the day? I found my lane by just being true to myself. Like, it's always been driven by a passion for what I like, what I want to see, what I feel like I could bring to the table. And I don't like to feel like I'm in a crowded space by any means, because then I'm just like, well, what, what's the use for me? What what can I contribute that a hundred other people aren't? And again, that's ironic for television, because it is such a crowded space, but I think For me, it's just about finding these uh, niche stories and very specific stories in anything that I do, whether that's podcasting or music or whatever. I think that I'm always asking myself the question, what what can I do that's different? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's funny and also interesting that you mention niche stories because— in so many ways, they aren't niche. I mean, you have sort of created stories in a way that speaks to such a broader audience, right? Like, I mean, I think of about the photograph. That movie is actually, I mean, from the outset, maybe niche, but the actual story and the relationships and the themes are not. And so I think it's interesting to kind of grapple with the idea of what niche means, particularly at the intersection of race, right? Mm, that's actually a great point. And I think that that's also always bothered me in the description of it. But I think where my stories are concerned specifically, it's because I've thought of them as smaller stories, like, you know, stories about my friends, my family, mm-hmm. you know, I think those don't feel like they're necessarily universal st- topics. I think something like Awkward Black Girl felt 
also niche because of the specificity in the title, but I knew that the awkwardness was a universal experience, but it was more about how I related to the Black experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You've had a pretty extraordinary glow up, I would say, <laughs> in the time since we've met, right? I mean, you've had starring roles in three major motion picture movies in less than two years. That's wild. Um, and you're producing mm-hmm. all sorts of other materials and multiple magazine covers, girl, multiple. Are you past the novelty of it? What does it feel like to have arrived? <laughs> <laughs> to have arrived. I'm definitely not past the novelty of it because it just feels like, it still f- feels like I have a lot to prove. I do have a lot to prove, especially, you know, in the starring role lane like that. This is because I've, I've never considered myself an actress first. I've always considered myself a writer, you know, a producer first. And so if I'm going to keep taking these opportunities, I want to excel. And so in that way, it still feels novel. It still feels exciting and a little bit scary. And I, I joke that, and not it's not necessarily a joke, but I think about how I started, I started with a sense of confidence um, because it was just like, I'm creating this archetype, I'm creating this these characters and producing for the internet and making something from scratch and forging a career for myself. And now that I'm in it, there's a sense of insecurity that comes with, oh, well, how long do I have here? And mm, mm. what what more can I do that will be accepted? And, you know, what will be my legacy? I don't want to be a flash in the pan moment. And, you know, am I good enough to stay? That's Issa Rae coming up the value of Black cultural criticism and its limits. Hey, everyone. Before we get back to Issa, I just want to take a quick second and say thank you for listening to this show and for the boost you've given it these last couple weeks. This pandemic has been so isolating for all of us, and it's been extra inspiring to hear from you and connect with you on Twitter. And I want to say a special thank you to the people who've reviewed the show on Apple Podcasts. It's such a huge help to us getting the word out about this show, and it lets us know where you're at what you're thinking, where you are in this conversation we're having. So please keep reaching out, review the show, and find me on Twitter. I'm at Rebel19. Thanks again, and now back to Issa. What is the difference for you between a cover on Teen Vogue and a cover on Essence? The cover on Essence means more, and it always it also <laughs> looks better, <laughs> to be honest. Yep. Um, the cover on Essence... I've always valued the love and support of us more than anything. Like to me, it almost hurts when you're valued by others more than us, you know? And I think I don't want that, you know? And and for me, the support and appreciation and love from a, a publication like Essence and I think just black people in general is that's a milestone for me and that's that's the that's what keeps me going 
That's an amazing thing that you said right there of it almost hurts to be valued more by others. And by others, I presume you mean white folks. Um, yes, which sure. definitely speaks directly into, you know, this book that I've written called Surviving the White Gaze. But that mm. the white gaze, you know, that we give so much power to, it does hurt. It is, you know, it's like Toni Morrison's Bluest Eye. Mm-hmm. It's like, how do we get out from under that? And it sounds to me like you were never under it to begin with. But I I was, I think. I think there's still a validation that comes from the approval of white publications and white media. Like, all of that is still necessary for visibility. And so in mm-hmm. that way, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm still on a white network, you know? I think mm-hmm. for me, mm-hmm. it's just as long as I'm staying true to myself and who I'm making the content for, it might not matter what medium, you know, I I don't want this to be a a permanent thing for me. But yeah, I think in some ways when you get those reviews from white publications and ultimately white critics that are approving of your work, that helps and it sucks. But I think, you know, now there's a a great conversation happening around Black critics and the value of their voices when it comes to works of color and all work in general. And what does it feel like, I wonder, when there is sort of pointed criticism from a Black critic about something you've done? It depends on who the Black critic is, because I can (laughs) be 100% honest and say that there are some that I just know don't fuck with me. And so I don't really respect (laughs) their opinions. And I almost get frustrated, like without calling one out, there's one that I'm like, why does this bitch have business writing about the show when I, it's clear that she doesn't fuck with me. But then there are other <laughs> ones where whether the critique is, if the critique is valid and if I, whether I agree with it or not, I respect their opinions. I'm like, oh, I read their work, you know, independent of my own and really respect what they have to say. So if they didn't fuck with this episode, they didn't get it. Okay. There's validity there. And I'm fine with that. I, I can sleep at night. But I just ask for thoughtful responses, and I ask that you not be harder on the work of Black people than you are. Because I, I feel like I see that often, too, where you have to prove that you're being fair, so you hyper-critique the mm. works of Black artists. And I, I see that a lot, too, in some of my peers' work. And I'm just like, is this coming from a sincere place, or is this coming from a snarky place of posturing. So there's a balance, but go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I was drinking from my I'm rooting for everybody black mug this morning, (laughs) which is a direct quote from you, of course, and thinking about how, you know, I (laughs) am rooting for everybody black. And so like, it's a little bit tricky, this whole kind of criticism and the conversation around black critics that has really blossomed. And I think it's really healthy in some ways, but it's also like, it's us. Mm-hmm. It is. And, it's us and we're right? all we have. And we're we're the ones that are going to ultimately be honest with each other. And we're the ones who the work is going to live through. We're the ones who, you know, maintain the memories of, of our work and the importance of it. And so, yeah, it's important. Yeah. So for this podcast, we're asking folks to have essential conversations about this year, which is 
already just banana pants. Um, what what do you think are the essential conversations we should be having? Uh, in general, how we care for the elderly in this country that has mm-hmm. been plaguing me. Um, just you know, from personal experience and what I've observed, and how we tend to people who don't have the means to take care of themselves. I think that those are essential conversations that we need to have, uh, especially as we're realizing and seeing that this virus is affecting us. And, you know, in in some cases, I'm not not even a conspiracy theorist, but I know when the decision has to be made to resuscitate or give us the best care that we're not always a priority. And some part of me is just like, you know, hearing that it's affecting Black people the most will make things more lax in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that deeply concerns me. Yeah, me too. But how about in terms of creativity? What's the essential conversation around that this year? Um, the conversations, I think, that is about the ownership and the restructuring of this industry. I think we're at a pivotal time, given that we're at a stop and we're seeing how much entertainment is valued and what kind of entertainment Mm. is valued to really put our entertainment in particular on a pedestal and make sure that it gets the respect that it deserves in in a more structured way, in in an organized way. Um, And and I'm not sure what that looks like, but those are the conversations that I'm interested in having. And so given that, you know, we've discussed the power and importance of not necessarily approval, but I guess approval, stamp of approval from white audiences. Do you feel like we're going to be able as Black folks to take this moment and really leverage our skills and our creativity and find our way out of this moment? I think we always do. (laughs) So I think this time will be no different. And I'm very confident in the people who are players. And I'm also confident in, you know, everybody who has a a part in this industry right now. And I think the conversations are so public and the, the knowledge is just getting more centralized in a way that I think, yes, absolutely. I think this is the time. This feels like a revolutionary time in that way. And so what are you hearing and what kinds of conversations are you having with your folks, with your people, with your community in the industry? The last conversation I had was that was interesting was actually with Justin Simeon, who I love. And we were just talking about, you know, how things have evolved and how, in a sense, we started off watching very limited Black creators coming up Mm -hmm. and either being inspired by them or feeling like, we were being let down by them. Mm. And it's interesting to be in a position where now we're subject to the same criticism or inspiration. And I think it's just a matter of, to the earlier point of like what we're doing with it, what is our moment? Will it last long? Will it not? And what are we creating? And how are we helping the next generation of creators to find a place within this industry? And I think... That's definitely a priority for so many of us who are here is just like we have the door open. So how can we push as many people through as possible in addition to 
trying to train the next pool of, a, of, of executives that'll be the decision makers? And how do we just create a stake, a long lasting stake in this industry so that we're not constantly having the same conversations about black waves of content and oh, how great mm. this renaissance is, you know? Um, so that's a huge part of the conversations that we're having. It's about creating things that we can ultimately own. It's striking to me, you know, the old saying, America gets a cold and Black folks get pneumonia. But I also mm-hmm. think, you know, reflecting on what you just said, which is that we always do come out of this. And I guess I would love to hear from you what, on a daily basis, do you turn to to reassure yourself of that? I mean, outside of my family um, mm-hmm. and my mother, I turn to the people that I work with, which I consider my creative community. Oddly enough, I read a lot of voices on Twitter, even though I stay away from, I've been staying away from Twitter a lot for the last couple of years and, you know, trying to take breaks and things like that. But I found myself going there more just to know how people are feeling, what they're going through, just to get a stake of, or a handle on the community sentiment. And for me, that's reassuring because it, it points out a lot of problems to me. It just feels real. And of course, it always feels amplified, which is my problem with that medium to begin with. But that's kind of my comfort place right now is the panic. And journalists, uh, good journalists, mm-hmm. for sure, are keeping me hopeful, keeping me in the know, and just keeping me inspired in in new ways when they're not, you know, causing me extreme anxiety. Okay, and my last question. Mm-hmm. What's something, like, super trashy you've been doing to cope? <laughs> For me, it's white cheddar cheeses, like, three or four bowls at a time. It's like, <laughs> it's like, I don't even know why. Like, what is that? <laughs> it's the right to indulge because I'm doing the same thing. Like I have been on, I'm like, when I get out of this pandemic and I get to go into the sun, I want a bikini body. And so I've been eating really well and, you know, doing my little workouts. I understand that, like why prisoners get so buff because they don't have shit to do. But <laughs> at the same time, I have like a separate Finsta that only follows food accounts. And there's this mm-hmm. account that I've followed for like a year now called World's Best Cookie Dough. And they always have the most delicious looking fucking cookies and cookie dough batter ever. And I never order it because I'm always on, you know, trying to be good. So I'm like, let me not put it in my house. But it came and I have been fucking these cookies up like in every which way. So I will do the same as you where I cook a really admirable meal and then just fuck that cookie dough up. (laughs) I love it. I love it. All right. Keep doing you. And um Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And congratulations. I hope our paths cross again soon. Thank you. That's Issa Rae. You can watch season four of Insecure now on HBO. Come Through is a production of WNYC Studios. Christina DeJosa and Joanna Solitaroff produced the show with editing by Anna Holmes and Jenny Lawton. Our technical director is Joe Plord, and the music is by Isaac Jones. Special thanks to Anthony Bancy. And I want to give a very special shout-out to Paula Schumann, our executive producer. 
Paul is moving on to a very exciting position at the New York Times. I cannot wait to listen to what she makes. Paula championed this show from the very beginning and helped us make it what it is. Paula, we could not have done this without you. Again, you can follow me at Rebel19 for all things come through. And if you like the show, please rate and review us. Until next time. 